Blog Talk Radio. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! You've heard about it. You've read about it. You've talked about it. And now, you've found it. This is Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio, the largest radio social network in the world, with your host, Alan Smith, a veteran of OTR trucking, business entrepreneur, and the most recognized name for assisting CDL students and new graduates. It's time to shut down that big rig, sit back, and come join the conversation. Truth About Trucking Live begins right now. All right. Well, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today is Thursday, January 30th, 2014. Thanks for tuning in this evening and sharing a little of your time with us. We appreciate it. I'm Alan Smith along with Donna Smith, and we have a great show planned for you on this go-around of Truth About Trucking Live, all about one of the really biggest debates going on within the trucking industry today, the enactment of the uh, $75,000 broker bond from the original $10,000 snuck into law through the MAP-21 Act. And, uh, I mean, literally snuck in. Really, we'll talk about that later. Although already law and over 9,000 smaller brokers have gone out of business because of this higher raise in the bond, the debate rages on largely due to our special guest this evening, a top expert in the field of transportation brokering. James Lamb is president of the Association of Independent Property Brokers and Agents, AIPBA, and he is a former New York State Department of Transportation Motor Carrier Investigator as well. And Mr. Lamb, through, uh, through the AIPBA, has submitted a 10-page exemption request to the FMCSA requesting that uh, all property brokers and freight forwarders be exempted from the $75,000 bond law. Others, such as the OIDA, uh, the ATA, and the TIA, the uh, Transportation Intermediaries Association, um, are all against our guest broker exemption to the FMCSA. And uh, Donna, we invited OIDA and the TIA to come on the show this evening to hear their side. Uh, well, uh, I know you heard back from them. What was the response again? Um, well, OIDA said they were going to try to call in. I hope they do. And um, a TIA uh, called back today and uh, would, like, would like us to reschedule to be able to have uh, Mr. Boltman on on our next show. So uh, he was away and out of the office, and he, uh, he couldn't make it tonight. So. Okay, yeah, I knew they, uh, they responded back pretty quick. Uh, of course, you know, on their, on their defense, we didn't give them very much notice, but they did respond back, you know. But, you know, maybe they'll call in. We can have a friendly debate on this issue. But for now, we'll, we'll hear the what and why of our guest opinions on this much-heated issue. And, of course, your thoughts and opinions as well as we roll along for the next uh, oh, hour and a half or so. Our number, if you'd like to join the conversation a little bit later, 347 826-9170. Uh, so we'll take a quick break, and we'll return with our special guest, James Lamb, president of the AIPBA, our show this evening, Repealing 
the $75,000 broker bond, and it's all coming up on Truth About Trucking Live. You're listening to Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio. Alan Smith will be right back. Hey everybody, Alan Smith here with the Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio. Have you been driving a big rig for a while now and considering starting your own business as an owner-operator? Well, Lone Mountain Truck Leasing offers the best lease purchase plan in the industry. With a small down payment and monthly payments around $1,000 or less, you make the monthly payment and when the final payment is made, they hand over the title. It really is that simple. There is no big balloon payment at the end, and secondly, the truck is yours, not a lease plan under one truck and company. So if becoming an owner-operator is your goal, do it the right way. Do it the best way. Contact Lone Mountain Truck Leasing on the web at LoneMountainTruck.com or give them a call toll-free at 866-512-5685. That's LoneMountainTruck.com. And be sure to tell them that you heard about them on Truth About Trucking Live. Hey everybody, Alan Smith here from Truth About Trucking Live and AskTheTrucker.com. And I want to tell you about TCRG Consulting. TCRG is a division of Transportation Compliance Resource Group. And with over 30 years of compliance and regulatory training and consulting, they are the company that can help you from the very startup of your new trucking commercial business to keeping your company compliant and up to date on the ever-changing federal motor carrier regulations. Their goal is to help their clients to comply with the FMCSRs. TCRG Consulting makes your DOT compliance easy and understandable, and they work hard to prevent interruption of your daily operations. So if you're having trouble with DOT, just think TCRG. Their services include obtaining DOT numbers, obtaining operating authority, new entrant carrier setup and training, driver qualifications, driver drug and alcohol training, maintenance records, CSA carrier reviews and counseling, data queue filings, plus a whole lot more. Their online special for drivers and owner-operators is offering a yearly consulting service for only $99. So for $99 a year, you have access to online compliance chat, free telephone consultations up to 15 minutes per call, data queue filings, and you'll be able to keep up with the ever-changing regulations with an expert, not the guy or gal in the truck next to you. So for more information, go to their website at tcrgconsulting.com or email them at regguy at comcast.net. You can get a quote or ask an online question. So remember, if you're having trouble with DOT, just think TCRG. TCRG Consulting, information and assistance to help you comply. Check them out, tcrgconsulting.com. This is Truth About Trucking Live with Alan Smith. To be a part of the program, call in now at 347-826-9170. Skype users can call in by clicking on the Skype button on our show page. To be a sponsor of the show, email Donna at info at truthabouttrucking.com. Now, back to the show. 
All right, we're back. 347-826-9170 is our number if you'd like to join us a little later in here with us. As we move along, our guest James Lamb joins us. Uh, phone lines filling up with listeners. Appreciate it. And those in the chat room, thanks for being here. But, James, how are you? Thanks for being here this evening. Yeah, good evening uh, to all of you folks, uh, especially you, Alan and uh, Donna. And it's great to be back on the show. Yeah, hey, James. Uh, we had you on here before once as a caller, but now I'm, I'm glad to have you on here as a guest. You and I have been shooting back and forth on LinkedIn and Facebook and such, but good to uh, good to talk to you at least in person, so to speak, here on the phone. I, uh, this is a pretty uh, pretty big heated debate going on. Real interesting. Been kind of following it the best I can, but you know you're uh, you know you're no doubt one of the leading experts in the field. That that you know that kind of goes without question and. And looking through all of this, your uh, your ten page request to the FMCSA and OIDA's response and such, we could uh, we could have a three day show and never get through it all. But you have some big opponents to your exemption filing, as I mentioned earlier, OIDA, ATA, the TIA. So, um, I, you know, I, I guess a good starting point is how um, I mean, how did the seventy five thousand bond? Uh, become part of the highway bill, the MAP-21, I guess so to speak, in the 11th hour, right before it was signed by the Senate and Congress. Uh, it was kind of slipped in there, wasn't it? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version of this, because this issue does go back at least 10 years. Um, the broker bond increase proposal originally originated from uh, OIDA, and OIDA, going back to 2004, had actually requested rulemaking from FMCSA uh, in 2004 to raise the bond from as high, uh, to as high as anywhere from 350000 to $500,000. And that particular proposal kind of went in one ear, I guess, of FMCSA, you can say, and out the other. And uh, over the years, uh, TIA and OIDA started to chat about the uh, notion of raising the bond, and I guess OIDA was still looking to pursue the matter and started to talk to some folks in Congress, including uh, Peter DeFazio. And ultimately, they got uh, Mr. DeFazio's attention, and the bottom line was that there was uh, what the two groups, TIA and OIDA, call a compromise um, that resulted from all of the industry discussions. And the compromise at the time was to raise this bond to $100,000. And that uh, pretty much was announced in the Journal of Commerce in early, I guess, January or so of 2010. And the, um, the Senate actually uh, saw a bill pop up from a couple of senators uh, called the Motor Carrier Protection Act of 2010, and that was assigned to the Transportation Committee, and that included this language of a bond of $100,000, and that's when we kind of uh, came into the picture. And what happened was basically we formed the AIPBA because there were a lot of freight brokers out there that were not too happy, and I think Dan, uh, who's here um, in the chat room uh, and probably listening uh, from Transport Watch, was one of them. And ultimately, the um, a number of brokers got together, and we, we pretty much formed this association of independent property brokers and agents, AIPBA, to uh, kind of provide brokers with an alternative voice in Washington. And a lot of those folks kind of felt that the TIA abandoned their interests in terms of the board's uh, TIA board's decision to agree to this $100,000 bond. 
Ultimately, that bill died in the uh, Senate committee after we protested it. And, um, and then an interesting thing happened in uh, the House in 2011, and that was that uh, the same legislation popped up under a new name, um, a uh, name of Fighting Fraud and Transportation Act, which I guess you could kind of call a chameleon bill if you, if you like. And ultimately, that bill was then brought before the House Transportation Committee, and again, no progress during that, uh, that session. And so here we had two attempts by TIA and OIDA to raise the bond from the existing $10,000 to um, $100,000, and both times, uh, you know, that did not come to fruition. So to answer your question, I guess in a rather long-winded way here, the, um, the result of that was the TIA decided to go to um, Harry Reid in the Senate, and uh, they were able to secure an amendment, uh, what we call it the, the 11th hour, to the highway bill, and they kind of snuck it into the highway bill in the hopes that it would be rubber stamped and passed. And ultimately, I think everybody that was following the political scene at the time, presidential election uh, year and all, and, and basically it, it was pretty clear that the highway bill had to pass for not only America's needs, but for uh, both uh, sides of the chambers, uh, both sides of the aisle, um, uh, political needs. And so the bottom line was that uh, the, uh, the bill did uh, actually get amended to include a $100,000 bond. And it actually went flying through the Senate. And a similar bill uh, was brought um, through the, uh, the House. And as the House and the Senate started to try to reconcile their differences, more along the lines of the major topics of the highway bill rather, rather than this particular minute issue as far as you know, the mainstream uh, politicians are concerned, they actually uh, came up with a conference committee. And uh, at that time, we began lobbying them uh, as well as other organizations like the American uh, Factoring Association and a number of other groups. Uh, that um, were involved, and uh, there were other folks that actually joined our coalition that uh, were involved in lobbying as well. And the bottom line was that uh, the amount was reduced to 75000 by a few members of Congress, and it was presented for a rather quick vote and, uh, and pretty much got rubber stamped. And one of the things that I posted on LinkedIn over the last 24 to 48 hours is an interesting YouTube video by um, a particular senator from Kentucky where he goes on, um, on the floor of um, Congress and he pretty much says, you know, I just got handed this 600-page highway bill, and people have added things to this bill overnight, and not one member of the Senate will actually read this 600-page bill before we vote on it. I'm going to object, he said. A number of other senators will object. And, uh, of course, the majority wanted to go through, and it did. And uh, that's kind of how we're stuck with MAP 21 and uh, the revised amount of $75,000. Well, that, uh, and that kind of seems to be common practice these days, you know, pass a bill without reading it. But, uh, you know, what I, what I read through, uh, uh, you know, a lot of other people who are against um, or who are for it, is you know they're saying that the ten thousand dollar bond you know wasn't uh, wasn't enough to prevent um, broker fraud, which I think we can all agree takes place within the industry. Your opponents, you know, they say the ten thousand dollar bond, which is nearly thirty years old, 
wasn't getting the job done and a raise in the trust was long overdue and and I would think there would uh there would need to be some kind of bond due to this fraud uh, your exemption is wanting to uh you know you know what an exemption does exempt it, exempt them you know from any kind of bond at all is my understanding but if that was the case what what protection of any kind would carriers and drivers have if there was a uh, no bond for them to uh, to put up at all well, that's a very good question, Alan, and in fact, that's a point that OIDA has um, actually raised in their comment uh, to this particular exemption application. And, you know, no one in the AIPBA and, and no legitimate broker that we're affiliated with wants to see truckers not paid. And, of course, there has been some degree of protection in place all this time. And, um, you know, we're not – our purpose of this is not to eliminate the bond. Now, that may be an unintended consequence of this particular uh, exemption application, but we look at it as it's more along the lines of cleaning the slate and kind of starting over and, um, and really going back to the drawing board and renegotiating with some of the trucker groups and uh, carrier groups about what the, the true public policy should be here. The, the impact of this particular uh, $75,000 instrument is turning out to be exactly what we had predicted for the last four years that it would be. And if you've been following us, any of the folks that are listening has been following us for a year or two years or the full four years that I've been involved in this uh, since January 2010, then they know that this is really a matter of this, uh, this particular bond having caused 9,800 businesses to be put down in December alone. And, and the whole time, we kept saying, no, the bond has to be a reasonable amount. Now, we didn't say we wanted to get rid of the bond. We didn't engage in any type of public policy lobbying to get rid of the bond. Now, TIA posted comments, uh, ironically, actually, uh, yesterday or the day before on this amount, uh, on this uh, particular uh, application, and they actually said they'd rather there be no bond at all, which was kind of a, a 300-or-180-degree um, turnaround, flip-flop, uh, if you will, and there's been quite a few flip-flops, uh, in my opinion, by Mr. Voltman and TRA. But, um, you know, the whole time we actually backed the uh, conventional wisdom of the experts in regulation at FMCSA, USDOT, and other state regulatory agencies that said that the appropriate thing to do in this instance was to keep a bond, but merely adjust the bond for inflation. So, in other words, uh, the idea was to take this $10,000 bond that obviously has lost value over the last uh, 30 years uh, and, and basically uh, adjust it for inflation, and the, de the determined amount from FMCSA was $25,000. And what they did was uh, between 2007 and 2010, in response to a request for rulemaking, this time not from the OOIDA, but from the American Moving and Storage Association with respect to the subsection of uh, or the subgroup of property broker known as household goods broker, they actually initiated rulemaking, um, as you may know, and they actually did conclude that in 2010 
doing two things. Number one, they raise the bond for those brokers that are engaged in household goods brokering, meaning third-party intermediaries and between consumers who are moving and moving companies, moving folks uh, interstate. And they actually uh, decided to, number one, do that for sure, and that went into effect in 2012. And number two, what they tried to do is they tried to leave the door open for a reanalysis of whether they should do the same exact thing for freight brokers. And uh, there's language in that rulemaking that specifically says something to that effect. Uh, while that was happening, that's when the TIA and the OIDA were both going before Congress and trying to overrule the FMCSA. And the reason why FMCSA did not go higher than 25000 as they indicated in the rulemaking, is because they did not want there to be any, quote, anti-competitive effects against the small players that were brokers brokering household goods uh, carriers and loads. So uh, they, they were already predisposed to that. Here we now are coming full circle, and it's kind of funny because, you know, as we look at this whole picture and as I'm explaining how this went down, you know, it reminds me of some of the things that I've said over the years with respect to this. What really happened was FMCSA was approached by OIDA for a $500,000 bond, which was preposterous in most you know, people's minds in, in the brokerage industry, because that would just eliminate totally, uh, virtually everybody except the mega brokers uh, that are out there. And uh, you know, ultimately, they, uh, they basically approached FMCSA. FMCSA said no. They went to the Senate. The Senate said no. They went to the House. The House said no. And now, despite the fact that they snuck it in and, you know, they, uh, they got away with, um, you know, this uh, rubber stamping effect that is a part of American politics today, ironically, here they are, these same people, TIA and, and OIDA, right back before the FMCSA once again, having to, you know, essentially defend what they've done here. And FMCSA has already made a determination, if you think about it, that uh, anything over 25000 at that time a few years ago would be anti-competitive. Yeah, I remember that. They, uh, they determined 25000 bond was appropriate and that anything uh, higher than that was not in the public's interest. But uh, seeing that this got slipped in uh, at the last hour in MAP 21, then really FMCSA had no choice but to... Uh, to enact the 75 bond, then that's really what it all boils down to, right? Yeah, well, that, that's true. I mean, uh, here, here's the thing. The, the notion here is that MAP 21 does not set a $75,000 bond. There's a myth out there that um, some people on you know, the, the other side think that that's what MAP 21 set. In actuality, and it may be a matter of uh, semantics to some folks, but it's a very important legal distinction. What MAP 21 did was MAP 21 set a new minimum bond. And what that means is that instead of a $10,000 bond, MAP 21 says to FMCSA, you have to set a new bond. And you have to set that bond at at least uh, 75000 but it can be more than 75000 You just have to go through the appropriate process and we call that process in, in government rulemaking, in order to do that. And in fact, MAP 21 specifically uses language that directs 
FMCSA to do just that. And one of the uh, lawsuits that we filed, and we've actually filed two lawsuits, is that the first, uh, you know, the first lawsuit was based on a constitutional issue, and we've kind of withdrawn that for now so we're not fighting this on too many fronts at once. We put that on the, the back burner because the more pressing issue is whether the FMCSA has properly implemented MAP 21, and we think not. And so what we're saying is that there's a portion of this rulemaking process called public notice and comment, and ultimately there's a process, the due process uh, that's required that FMCSA is supposed to go through, and they didn't do that in this instance. Uh, some of these brokers who got revoked, and we're, we're talking about, again, uh, 8,200 brokers, and uh, they're part of a, a bigger subset of what we call transportation intermediaries in general, uh, surface transportation intermediaries, 9,800 of them uh, being revoked, of which 8,200 are brokers. Those, um, those folks, some of them may not have gotten the proper notice about uh, this particular uh, $75,000 bond uh, being now required. And uh, there are some folks that will say, well, that's crazy because, you know, everybody's been talking about this. But believe it or not, there are some folks that just mind their own business and do their business, and they don't pay attention to some of this stuff. But, um, you know, the, the point here is that that's the process that was due. And, in fact, as we have uh, filed a lawsuit with the U.S. Court of Appeals on this issue, challenging the way FMCSA did the rulemaking, what we've basically done is we have actually protected the rights of the other side if you think about it, people like, um, you know, or, or organizations, trade groups like OIDA and TIA that wanted that $100,000 bond, they should have had the opportunity to go through rulemaking and say, you know, well, 75000 is the minimum, but we still believe that there should be a $100,000 bond. And even though we don't like that idea, that's the process so, that's, that's required. So, in other words, this was made a final rule uh, without, without any comment. Uh, opportunity for comments. Right. What, exactly, Donna. What, what's happening okay. is, is they've called it a technical amendment rule. And what they're saying is, well, Congress set the bond at 75000 Therefore, because they set the bond, we have to adjust our existing rule of 10000 and overwrite it and make it 75000 But that's not what, what MAP 21 says. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, let's jump to a caller here. Um, I'll call out your area code, area code 406. Uh, go ahead. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Uh, this is Dan, uh, Dan Matuli, and I am a broker. I've been one for 18 years. Oh, hey, Dan. Uh, hey, Dan. I've run my own. Hello there. It's nice to, to speak with both of you again. Uh, yeah, I've run my own while. brokerage group. Yes, it, it has. I've been a little bit busy lately trying to... Uh, grow my brokerage in order to to address the issue of the increased costs that I see that I've realized in, in accomplishing getting this bonding. Now, a, a couple of items I would speak to. First off, when this when this legislation was was created, it was it was called the, the Fighting Fraud and Transportation Act. Okay, this is this is what died, I assume, three times on its on its own. Uh, it seems to me to be a contradiction. It's, it's just I can't think of a single thing that this does to combat issues of fraud in transportation. Now, realistically, I, as a broker, I don't see a problem 
with an increase in the bond. I, I really don't see an increase in the, a problem with an increase in the bond to 75 or even 100. But if you were really going to if you were really going to say that this was was not meant to be not to be anti-competitive, then that bond should have been increased incrementally in a fashion where the surety companies could deal with it e- uh, easier and where people who truly wanted to stay in this business could deal with it better. Uh, it, in my view, and, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. If you put one honest business person out for, for simply the sake of being a small business person, then something is dreadfully wrong. Well, let me. I have Oida's uh, uh, statement to the FMCSA uh, in uh, contrast to uh, James's uh, exemption request. Let me read a little bit here to you. This is word for word from from their actual statement: uh, raising the bond or trust amount to seventy-five thousand is intended to reduce harm caused by undercapitalized brokers who steal transportation service from motor carriers, the protected parties under the broker bond or trust statute. The $10,000 bond or trust was simply not sufficient to serve its intended purpose to protect the motor carriers from non-payment by brokers. Increasing the bond or trust amount, which was set at $10,000 over 30 years ago, is a long overdue update to the statute. So would you agree with that? I would. I would. And, and again, I, I simply think it should have been handled in, a, in an incremental fashion. Uh, to honestly, to put say eight thousand or eighty-two hundred people out of business. Now, their their agents likely would migrate to other larger brokerages that were able to handle the increased bond. Okay, so realistically, we don't really know what what the numbers are. We don't know what the damage is so far and we won't for quite some time I believe however there are people there that were running those brokerages who maybe no longer uh, moved the freight themselves but provided back office support now they're they're simply out of business they have mortgages they have kids going to school they're small business people just like any other small business and this this bill was was not initially sold as as being an adjustment as, as being an, an adjustment of uh, an inflationary um, nature, which which is obviously reasonable. It was sold as as a method to fight tra- uh, fight transportation fraud, which it does not do. My uh, I'm a small broker. I'm currently running about four and a half million dollars. So. Be it ten thousand or seventy-five thousand. If I'm going to go out of business, I'm going to go out of business, and that's going to take. And I'm going to go down for a lot more than seventy-five. It's there are people out there that are undercapitalized. Certainly, there are people out there that are bad business people. There are people out there that that will see this great big amount of money in their bank account and figure that they can go out and just spend that without without thinking about the you know the amount of money that has to go back out to trucks every day in order to maintain your reputation, your integrity. And those those are simply bad business people. They're not they're not criminals. They shouldn't be in the industry, but they're they're not criminals and it's not fraud. 
Uh, well, I, I'm I'm just a little confused. Um, I'm just kind of like taking it all in here. You said that you do agree with the what Oida said that ten thousand wasn't enough, and that it should be higher, but it should be uh, in increments. Yes. But on the other hand, um, if if I understood correctly, you said that this that the um, bond doesn't protect against fraud so then what does it protect against Uh, okay you know realistically the the dissemination of information if people would if people would um, try to get the word out more and more effectively about what is happening and who is doing it and they were willing to talk about it and you know that's this is why I've created the forum of transport watch to address this unfortunately Within the last year, I've, I've had my hands full just just trying to maintain or, or grow my business to a point where I could where I could uh, address this particular issue. I have I have a responsibility to a great many people, but you know I've I've gotten past this issue. We're planning towards we're we're planning with the future in mind. If if things change again, to where we can be in a position to address that as well. And now we're gonna we're gonna start uh, pushing out transport watch a little bit more and see if we can't get people to to take a little bit more active role in their own protection. And uh, I honestly believe that's the only way we're going to be able to do it. Okay, so I, I I guess so. What is the bond for if it doesn't protect against fraud? What why do you believe then it should be uh, increment higher in in increments, but. Well, so what is are, what is its use? There are people out there, as I said, that are that are not good business people. Okay, so and, it's for those people that you just described. Okay. Yes, and I, I mean, okay. let's let's face it. Not everybody's a good businessman. Not everybody's uh, you know going to do all the right things all the time, and we've all seen it a million times. Uh, so the ten thousand, it was it was a number from thirty years ago. I think it's appropriate to raise that. I, I would have I would have welcomed a $25,000 bond, and then if they wanted to go further, give us time to adjust to it. You know, we're not yeah. we're just because we're brokers doesn't mean doesn't mean we're all bad, and we we have a right to be able to run a business just like anybody else. All right. Well, James. Uh... <clears throat> We have a broker here online that was okay with it. What's your thoughts? What's your response? Well, my initial my initial thought is that uh, Dan is one of the lucky ones. Dan is one that has survived this, uh, what I call guillotine coming down on the industry, just so that folks have a full understanding of exactly what we mean by 9,800 businesses having to shut down because their licenses were revoked. We're basically talking about 41% of the transportation intermediary, surface transportation intermediary industry. That's a big whopping uh, percentage. When we look at how how many or or the percentage of brokers that were shut down, we see 38%. And when we look at how many freight forwarders that are also required to comply with this bond requirement, how many of them were shut down, it's a whopping 72% of those businesses put out of business. 
So Dan Dan is able to struggle through this. He's been able to get his bond. He's been able to stay in business. But 9,800 businesses have not. And of those businesses, some of them are one-man shows, and some of them are mom and pops, and then some of them actually employ people, whether they're independent agents, independent contractor uh, freight agents, or whether they're uh, actual in-house sales uh, representatives. But what we know is that these people were there. They were actively licensed. And, you know, a lot of folks on the other side are saying, well, you know, this was a cleaning of the database and it wasn't that bad. And TI says uh, it's going to be minimal impact. 9,800 businesses is not minimal impact. 41% of the transportation intermediary industry is not minimal impact. So, you know, this is really a matter of jobs. This is a matter of consumer prices, which has now gone up in December, according to the Consumer Price Index, just like we predicted. Trucker rates are falling. Trucker rates are, are down in all three major uh, categories of uh, reefer, flatbed, and standard van. And we know that because that comes out of uh, Transcore trend lines. And, in fact, uh, Internet Truck Stop, uh, just within the last couple of days, has uh, indicated um, – uh, economist uh, Jerry West from Transfor, uh, Transforecast, he has indicated that van rates are down this week over the last week 3%. So all of these things that we've predicted that would happen if we had a bond that's too high are now happening. Now, should there be a bond? Of course there should be a bond. And no one wants uh, truckers to be unprotected. We would make a statement to truckers that uh, they should take some individual responsibility for the business decisions that they make and ultimately make sure they're not making poor credit decisions. But, uh, you know, the, the, the traditional broker that's in that same position, there is no bond for him. So when he doesn't get paid by the shipper, there's no claim he can file, there's no 10000 there's no 75000 He's just out of luck, and he has to go and, and basically file some sort of court case for breach of contract and, um, and ultimately go that route. So, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I've found interesting is that OIDA has been very silent for the last couple of years. Freight forwarders have not needed a bond at all. Freight forwarders used to be required to have cargo insurance, and they haven't for the last two years. And now all of a sudden, you know, OIDA is concerned about there not being a bond. Well, what's the purpose of the bond? The purpose of the bond is not to protect anyone from fraud. The purpose of the bond is to ensure responsibility on the part of the players that are involved in the transaction, and specifically the broker who has commitments to be uh, met with respect to his trucker in terms of paying and in terms of his shipper that he's going to secure transportation for. There's a big difference between what we call business failure and irresponsibility in business and the crime of fraud. Fraud gets thrown around way too much in this industry, and we have to really be sure we understand what fraud is. Fraud is a crime, and it's a crime that's predicated on intent. Not too long ago, we saw some, some broker that got locked up because he was engaged in what we call a scheme to defraud. That means he would book loads with no intention of paying carriers whatsoever or independent truckers, and he did this over and over and over again, and he basically slighted way too many truckers. He's a criminal. He's now in jail. And that's where criminals belong. So what we don't do when we make public policy is look at the criminals and look at the honest business people like Dan and make decisions as if everybody was a criminal. And that's what's happened here. 
you know, it, it, it's funny because um, I'm almost thinking of the the stereotype of truckers and how they're being overregulated because of uh, some activity that has gone on uh, by a few uh, in the business. And, and it's almost like the regulations are trying to control behavior uh, of everybody in, in both arenas, uh, in the freight broker arena and the trucking arena. I mean, I see a similarity uh, in this. Uh, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I, I think I think that what you're really trying to say is that there's an ability for the government to regulate, and then there's an ability for the industry to really police itself. And uh, I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth or not, but that's you know that's yeah. the take I get. You're saying, right? And and so what we what we talked about last time I was on this show when I called in, we told you folks that AIPVA came into existence, and we basically established an ethical pledge. And we basically would put all these, you know, brokers together, and we would say, look, this is a new group. These people are going to operate um, with uh, an ethical, uh, you know, pledge or code. And people who are looking to, to work with brokers should use AIPBA members. And, in fact, when there's a problem with an AIPBA member, we put together a dispute resolution program so that if you're not getting paid from one of my member brokers, well, I've got a mechanism for you to report that in and for you to tell me because I don't want my brokers that are taking the AIPBA logo and putting it on their website and their materials running around committing fraud because once that happens, that affects our brand, and our brand is not as valuable anymore. So ultimately, we would kick them out, and we also, you know, if you recall, told you that we would go above and beyond when we saw a pattern of fraudulent activity, and we'd report that ourselves to FMCSA, and to the appropriate law enforcement agencies. All right. Uh, uh, Dan, I wanted you to give you another chance. Did you have anything else you wanted to share? I'd, I'd agree with everything that James said. You know, I think he's, he's been a tireless advocate in this issue, and I appreciate everything he's done. I, again, <clears throat> these, these increases, they don't, they don't do anything to address fraud. And fraud, also, I agree with him when he says that that term is thrown around quite a bit. You know, we as brokers, we we take we get the beating here and there from trucks. That kind of thing is is never noticed. You know, the truck that that um, that will ruin a load of freight and skip on their insurance deductible. There's you know, there, there, many times you get stuck by shippers, and it doesn't really matter. You you still need to you still need to pay that bill in 30 days. You know, I've had I've had carriers that have uh, that have dropped loads of freight on the ground and refused to have it restacked and and taken care of. Um, there's there's an there's blame to go around in all in all sides of the industry, but it's disingenuous at, at the very least. To say that increasing this bond has has any effect on those issues of crime. Okay. All right. Well, hey, I I I, I appreciate it, Dan. Really, um, I'm kind of watching the time. Uh, uh, thanks for calling in, and uh, you know, good to hear from you again. And uh, I've got some questions here, James. I'm trying to get in here, and I'm sure Donna does too. But I'm going to ramble on here for a minute and get your response. Uh, 
you uh, you point out in your 10-page exemption request all the reasons why this bond raise is a bad idea, not only for brokers but for the entire industry, the the general public, carriers, drivers, and so forth. And and uh, this is where we could have a three-day show and never cover it all. But you mentioned impacts from this uh, uh, rate increase, such as uh, immediate loss of jobs, impact on consumer prices, uh, impact on freight rates, increased market share for the larger brokers, and on and on. And you stated that um, uh, broker fraud can be prevented by uh, criminal enforcement rather than economic regulation. So, I mean, you have 10 pages pointing out all of these impacts, all great points. Um, and and the, the two main reasons I see that others are for the increase are, one, the $10,000 bond wasn't enough to prevent fraud, and two, the FMCSA has no legal authority to uh, make a decision of and for any kind that would violate a recent legislative action. So uh, more specifically on that last part, uh, uh, what's your response to that? Because uh, I believe, let me go over here to the show details. Um, let's see. Uh, you had you had made a statement that the FMCSA could override the requirement in accordance with their lawful exemption authority duly granted to them by Congress. So I'm getting two different things here. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, let's let's talk about the two points that you raised. The first point that you raised was basically that the $10,000 bond is uh, is too low, and we admit that, and we. You know, we concur and we would have preferred that there would be a simple adjustment for inflation to 25000 With respect to this application, what, what folks need to understand here is that we're dealing with two different laws, two different federal United States Code statutes. The first one is this new one, MAP-21. And MAP-21, again, says the minimum amount of the bond has to be 75000 and FMCSA is, is charged with doing rulemaking. The second one is an interesting law that, um, that establishes FMCSA's exemption authority. And so here we have Congress saying, look, from time to time there may be some extenuating circumstances or there may be some uh, specifics that we as Congress can't possibly anticipate, and we're going to leave it to you, administrative agency, FMCSA, operating under USDOT, to fill in the blanks and to determine when the law that we pass does make sense and when it doesn't make sense. And they've established certain rules for FMCSA to follow, certain criteria as to when they can make a person or a group of people, a category of people, exempt from a particular statute. And that's basically what we're applying for, for them to exercise that lawful statutory authority and for them to declare all brokers and all forwarders exempt from this bond basically because of the way that it was passed and because of the fact that there's no fact-finding involved, there's no studies backing it that says a higher bond would fight fraud, there's no study that says, well, a lesser amount might have fought fraud, there's nothing. There's just a political favor and there's just a, you know, one person putting in an, in an amendment in a 600-page bill that nobody read that was passed because it had to pass because it contained certain things that the country needed in terms of highway funding and, and infrastructure funding. So the criteria that we have to satisfy in order to be approved is basically three things. Number one, 
is that the, the law that is in question is not necessary to carry out the national transportation policy, and that policy is basically codified in another law, Section uh, 13101 of Title 49 of the United States Code. The second thing is it's not needed to protect shippers from abuse of market power. And the third is that it's not in the public interest. Well, when we look at this issue and when we look at the impact as it actually went down, we believe that this is not only not necessary, it's actually in direct conflict with the national transportation policy that talks about a whole heck of a lot of things that we're supposed to do in transportation when we're talking about the government, and that includes making sure there are price options available to shippers, making sure that there's um, enough involvement from many different segments of uh, the population, including members of the protected class, such as women and minorities. This does everything exactly opposite of what our national policy says we're going to do. So that's number one. Number two is not only is this not needed to protect shippers from abuse of market power, it actually is causing shippers to sustain abuse of market power. Because if you think about it, now that 9,800 intermediaries are down and 41% are gone, where is the market share going to go? It's going to go to the larger brokerages that can now charge shippers more because of supply and demand and who's desperate and who's not. And ultimately, there's a lack of opportunity and choice for both shippers and independent truckers and carriers. They could have gone to, you know, 100%, and now they only have 60% left. And we argue that this is just phase one of a phase two problem. Second phase has to do with the bonds that were issued and whether they're shaky bonds and whether they'll be available next year. You know, I don't, I don't know about Dan and where he got his, his bond, but, you know, there's a few bond programs out there that, in our opinion, are not long-term viable instruments and are going to eventually collapse, kind of like the bubble bursting uh, in the stock market many years ago. And ultimately, they will not be available, and we're going to lose some more brokers. The third point has to do with whether this is in the public interest. Well, you know, as we looked at the job, in, at the initial job claims reports, as this uh, was implemented in early December, the two weeks before this was implemented, initial job, jobless claims were down. The first week it went up. The second week it went up higher. And then when the revocations were done, and we argue our brokers and agents that were put out of work went and filed claims, then ultimately it went down again for the, for the following week and down further and corrected itself for the week after. We think there's a correlation there. We're not saying that every one of those jobless claims were brokers, of course, because it's a national-wide statistic, but we think that the loss of jobs, the increase in consumer prices that we're starting to see as of this Consumer Price Index report in early January, the trucker rates being down, is exactly what we said would happen, and that that is not in the public interest. And you know, a lot of our listeners are um, truckers, owner operators. Um, <clears throat> could you explain? Because I I think many of them thought that this increased bond would actually uh, have a, a different effect on their rates; that their rates would be higher. So, if you could explain why their rates are going to be lower, um, I think that would help quite a bit. Sure. I mean, it's really a matter of supply and demand. And, you know, there, there's this 
Unfortunately, in this industry, there's this anti-broker sentiment among some truckers. And it's kind of an ambivalent love-hate relationship, as we all know, because, you know, I, I ask people, you know, do you like brokers? So when I stop at the, the truck stop, they say no. And I say, well, how come? Well, because they take too much money and they're not very nice. And whatever their experiences with a particular broker or two are, they'll tell me the story. And I'll say, well, then why do you use brokers? Well, I've got to have it loaded on the backhaul. And so there's this love-hate relationship. And what the problem here is that, is that this has for so long, because of such animosity, been about broker versus trucker and trucker versus broker, when in fact when we look at this, this is really a matter of small businesses in transportation that really need each other and really need to think of each other in terms of being partners in business and teammates really in the supply chain. But we, don't, we haven't gotten that far. Now, to answer your question, the problem here is that even though some folks said, yeah, let's get rid of all the brokers, that will be great because then the more shippers will work with us and we'll make more money, what they forget, and I think what Elider forgot, is that there are companies out there that are mega brokerages like C.H. Robinson that make $11.4 billion a year. And those brokerages are never going to go anywhere. One of the things that I posted over the last uh, 48 hours, and I think Alan um, noted that uh, he liked that post, was that there's a situation here where there's a number of one-man brokers that have not been unemployed because of this. Have, they've chosen to go and work as agents for other large brokerages. And what essentially has happened here and what, what OIDA, in my opinion, has affected is a decrease in truckers' rates because what we've done is we've added a second middleman. Think of it for a second that we have a typical scenario where there's a shipper, there's a one-man broker, and there's a one-man independent trucker that's operating under his own operating authority. Traditionally, small brokers try to average somewhere between 10 and 15%. Now, there are going to be some that are going to be, you know, the type that are going to try to cheat people, and we're always going to have bad apples in the industry, and there will be, you know, truckers that will, will argue that, you know, they run into a few of those in their lives. But the, the bottom line is that the, the average AIPBA member, small, one-man broker, averages between 10 and 15%, most of the time about 12%. The average mega brokerage has publicly stated that they try to earn 22.5% commission. Now, if you think about this, if you force out this one-man broker, and he's one of the 9,800 businesses that have been closed, and you force him to go and work for the mega brokerage, now he's going to earn 60% of the deal instead of 100% of the deal because it's not his business, He's going to earn less on the load, and ultimately you're going to see the trucker get paid less because the brokerage is taking 22.5% instead of 15%. And in yeah. fact, as, as ridiculous as, the, as that is, you'll see that that one-man broker, and it can be a matter of, let's say, on $1,000, you know, it can be a matter of like 15 bucks that he's losing. He's actually got an incentive so that he will now try to get more than 22.5% for his brokerage so he can get back to where he started and earn that 150 bucks. And so what OIDA has effectively done is they've added a second middleman into the equation. 
big brokers are not going anywhere. And now these small brokers have a choice of either not feeding their families or go to work for these larger brokerages and engage in the business practices that the larger brokerages do. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, everything you say makes sense. Um, uh, Donna, we're going to have to do a follow-up show with OIDA and TIA. I mean, I didn't expect them to call in. but um, And, and James, um, I mean, Trans, Transcore echoes your sentiments, too. I mean, they've stated that shippers will eventually begin doing business with a mega-sized brokers who will later uh, create higher freight rates and uh, won't, won't share the additional profits. In fact, they'll be squeezing the driver out by paying them less because uh, they like the shippers won't you know they won't they won't have any more options or choices to choose from and transcore they also define this as predatory pricing which yeah. uh, which we noted is uh, illegal under antitrust laws as this can lead you know to a monopoly with the industry is what what you have uh, mentioned before in our show so I mean these are pretty strong terms uh, I mean do you believe that the uh, Department of Justice will do an investigation into this bond increase sooner or later? We have already filed a complaint with the Department of Justice for antitrust. Oh, you have. Uh, and, uh, that, and according to the Department of Justice, that matter is currently, quote, under review. Oh. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, like I said, taking it all in, but I just want to read something that is very confusing on, on the TIA's comment. It says, while TIA believes that the industry would be better served without a bond requirement, Congress rejected that position with the enactment of MAV-21. So is what they were saying is they suggested not to have a bond requirement in, uh, in the highway bill? I mean, that's what it sounds like. I take serious issue with that one sentence because as I read that sentence, if I were an average trucker, if I were the FMCSA, what I believe that means or how that would be perceived is TIA saying, look, we said there shouldn't be a bond at all, and Congress just went and did this all by their lonesome. Well, that's not the truth. This, is, this program is called The Truth About Trucking. Here's the truth. Yes. The truth is that TIA wrote the legislation, the section of the legislation that is now MAP 21. So for them to purport and misrepresent to FMCSA that they did not want a bond and that Congress did this all by themselves, when they wrote the legislation, well, you know, I'm sorry, but I think Mr. Volman is going to have some explaining to do, and I hope he does show up on the, the next program. Okay, because that was very confusing to me. Um, there's quite a few things that are confusing to me, though, so um, I'm trying to catch up with it all. Just bear with me. Um, another thing that uh, I wanted to bring up that I, when I read was about the uh, loss of jobs. Uh, many people said that, uh, well, they, they don't even count. They weren't even active brokers, and uh, yet, I believe you said, yes, they were. Maybe their email address was changed or something, but they were still paying their their dues, so they were active. So, I mean, how does, I mean, have you had much, you know, uh, friction with that? Well, I think what you're referring to is that TIA in their comments said something about we're involved with the Unified Carrier Registration Board 
And because of our involvement, we, we know how frustrating it is when one of the states tries to contact one of the carriers or brokers to collect their UCR dues, and ultimately they learn that the mail comes back because they've got a – and it's U.S. postal mail that's coming back because they have a bad – address on file. And so there, therefore, ergo, in the world of TIA, that therefore means these people are inactive. Well, that's not the truth either. Here's, here's how this works. And, and I can tell you this because my expertise lies not only from being the president of AIPBA, but I'm also the president of DOTAuthority.com. And we're a truck permit agency, and essentially that's my you know, day job, and essentially that's uh, what we do for a living. We help people become motor carriers or freight brokers. And we ultimately will help truckers, you know, take that next step and, and apply for their authority. We know the safer system inside and out. And the way this works is that you have to have an active authority, and, and in the case of a broker, an active broker's license, that is able to be taken away when FMCSA issues a revocation order. So in other words, the, the revocation order is the very act of taking a licensed active broker and making him or her into an inactive broker. So when we say 9,800 businesses were revoked, what that means is that they were active, and FMCSA said, you better get a $75,000 bond on file by December 1st. If you don't, we're going to take your license away. Starting December 2nd through the 16th, they took away 9,800 licenses, and they changed them from active to inactive. And in order to be active to begin with from, for a broker, what that means is that he has, up, at, up until that point, maintained an active $10,000 surety bond. So in other words, if he was inactive, then he wouldn't have been paying for his bond. And he was paying for his bond because he had an active license that was then taken away, you know, by virtue of the revocation order. So this cleaning up the database or whatever is what just a smokescreen? Yeah, it, it's actually okay. dam it's damage control. So in other okay. words, we said if this happens, then ultimately all these people are going to be revoked, and they're saying, well, those people weren't active anyway. Of course they were active. They were paying for their bond. Okay. And they got revoked. <laughs> I have Barry Kevin has a comment and to ask you and maybe you've already addressed it uh but here it is if there is a spare moment I would ask Mr. Lamb to comment on the section of the law that addresses the separation of contract carrier status from broker status and um I'm not really sure what that means but I guess you do Well I yeah I can't point to the actual section without reviewing the, you know, the actual um, United States Code, but I can tell you that there are, there are three different classifications that are uh, currently in the SAFER system. One is common carrier, one is contract carrier, and one is a broker license. A contract carrier is not a broker license, and they're two separately and distinctly different things. But what we've, what we've basically seen over the, the last oh, 30 years or so because of deregulation has been that there really isn't much left to distinguish a common carrier from a contract carrier these days. Way back in the day before the, the um, uh, 1980 Act, the Motor Carrier Act, basically the, you know, the deregulated the industry, 
way back in the day, in order for you to become a carrier, you had to go to the ICC and the Interstate Commerce Commission, and you had to go before a judge, and it was a big deal to get an operating authority. And in terms of common carrier, there was something called an obligation to serve the, the, uh, the public, common carrier obligation. And in order to hold on to your license, you had to be able to uh, show the, the uh, ICC that you were properly serving the public. They only gave out a limited number of uh, common carrier authorities. Contract carrier was a little different because you weren't serving the public per se, but specific shippers. You would usually file your contracts. On the common side, you would file your public tariffs. And in, in terms of deregulation, and as late as a, a couple of years ago, when FMCSA stopped requiring common carriers of property to file cargo insurance, uh, there's really nothing left to distinguish one or the other. So from our perspective, in our world, there's really just a carrier and a broker, and they're distinctly different. And the implications of MAP21 that I'm sure Barry is interested in really has to do with the fact that carriers are being told by MAP21 that in the event that they arrange for transportation but they do not take possession of the shipment, at least at some point during the shipment, then they are deemed as brokers and they are therefore required to have a secondary separate broker license. And, uh, that, you know, obviously that's in, in addition to their, their carrier authority. Okay. So that I hope that answers. Uh, he's in the chat room, so. Um, uh, he was. Uh, Not anymore. Oh, he isn't in here anymore? Oh, no, he's in there. I see him. Uh, he's in there, but he can't. I, I, I blocked him. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, well, I guess, you know, we haven't even said your site, James. It's uh, AIPBA.org. Um, so I guess kind of wrapping it up here, where uh, where do you guys stand now? What are you waiting on and what are you working on and uh, what, do you, what do you see happening? What are you, what's, what's going on with it now? Well, as you know, the uh, exemption application was filed last August and it was accepted uh, in late December. And that's ironic because that's two weeks after all these 9,800 businesses were revoked. Uh, FMCSA all of a sudden decided to accept that application. It was sitting there for five months, and they opened up the proceeding. Now, they didn't have to open up the proceeding. The law says they may if they choose to, and they chose to. And then uh, ultimately they gave 30 days for the public to comment. That comment period, I think, as you know, ended a few days ago. And now it's a matter of uh, assessing our arguments and the comments of all the people. Seventy people uh, commented, two-thirds of which were in favor of our side, one-third on the other side. Uh, OIDA and TIA commented. Uh, I don't believe ATA commented at all. But um, now they're going to kind of reconcile all this, and they're going to look at the law. And the important thing for, I think, people to walk away with is the law says, and I'm talking about the exemption authority law, um, that particular law specifically says, and it comes from uh, 49 U.S. Code 13541, that law says that once they do open the proceeding, which was optional, if they determine that we have satisfied these three statutory criteria that I described tonight, then the secretary shall issue the exemption. So they have no discretion technically. Once they conclude we're right, then they have to issue the exemption. And then there will be no bond at all, not even a 10000 Well, there's a question about what happens at that point. 
Um, but I believe Belita is probably right in their assessment that um, at that point the, the, the law says um, it has to be a minimum of 75000 and then the regulation now has been changed. Now, there's a question about whether they changed it lawfully or not, and there may still be an issue uh, you know, beyond the exemption application in terms of the Court of Appeals. We're not sure yet. But um, you know, once they changed that regulation and eradicated 10,000 and put 75,000 in its place, the exemption is from that rule, that 75,000. So the question then becomes: um, Should AIPBA and ATA and TIA and OOIDA, a lot of A's in there, uh, whether we should all sit down and then go back to Congress and say we've all now talked about this and we agree that the appropriate thing to do is what FMCSA originally wanted to do, which was merely adjust the $10,000 for inflation. And then we can have a legitimate amount that doesn't uh, negatively affect either side and it fairly balances everyone's interests, balanced playing field. And then I think we could start to work on maybe improving the relationship between brokers and, uh, and truckers and really try to get them to realize that we're all really teammates on the same side. Yeah, I mean, because this is a law. You're going to have to have – Congress is going to have to be involved in this. I mean, they're the only ones that can change the law. So uh, you might have um, – Well, I thought the FMCSA could. Not a law. Okay. Isn't that – I mean, my uh, my short-term little political uh, expertise here, but, I mean, once it's a law, only Congress can change a law. Isn't that right, James? That's yeah, right. so, so yeah, FMCSA, they yeah. – Okay. Well, so it's basically just a wait-and-see thing right now. That's exactly right. We're waiting for the decision, and then if they do grant the exemption, then uh, we all got to kind of put our heads together and say, now what do we do next for the betterment of the industry as a whole? And what do you think the turnaround time on that is? What do you, what do you think we'll all know? Oh, I, I really don't know. I mean, it could be a week. It could be five months. You know, it all depends on okay. how the pressing issues they have to deal with. Okay. I have one more question. So if the ultimate um, reasoning for the 75000 bond uh, was for fraud, then um, what, how do you prevent fraud? I mean, what's the real, real solution for that? It's one word, and that word is enforcement. It doesn't okay. matter what regulatory enforcement or criminal enforcement or both. But uh, there's enough rules already on the books and enough laws already on the books so that if people are really, truly trying to take advantage of, of each other, there's a law out there already ready and waiting to be enforced that uh, ultimately all we have to do is push a button and uh, we can get the real bad apples out of the industry. And that's what really everybody wants. Um, and, and remember one last thing, that everything is not necessarily what it appears to be. And again, truth about trucking, the real truth here is that this was not a, an attempt to fight fraud, although some people purported that that was the attempt. This was really about trying to fight competition. Okay, and that, yeah, I've, I've read where you've said that quite a few times. Yeah, and uh, Dan Matuli, uh, transportwatch.com. Dan, you need to get that thing going again. That's a great site. Uh, kind of echoed your same sentiment there, James. But. Uh, well, time's winding down, but James Lamb, appreciate you coming on the program. Uh, been real interesting. We could have gone on for hours, but it's a big battle for you. We'll be watching. And and uh, any other websites uh, you would like to give out for those interested in what you and the AIPBA are working to accomplish? 
Yeah, anybody that's interested in learning more about this exemption application can visit simply app, uh, excuse me, exemptionapplication.com. Oh, okay. You got that. Did you know that, Donna? I didn't know about that site. Exemptionapplication.com, all right. And um, all right, sounds good. Hey, really appreciate it, and uh, we'll have to do this again, and we'll try to hook up with uh, OIDA and someone at TIA and maybe do it again down the road or something. I would very much look forward to that, and, and I thank you both for having me on the show this evening. All right, really appreciate it, and have a great evening. And uh, we'll take a quick break. Donna, do you have any uh, anything tonight? No, no announcements tonight. Nothing? Okay, well, listen, we'll take a quick break, and we'll return, and we will uh, wrap up this broadcast of Truth About Trucking Live. You're listening to Truth About Trucking Live on Blog Talk Radio. Alan Smith will be right back. Heads up, truckers. Are you looking for deals on trucks, trailers, parts, or equipment? Or maybe you need to sell something truck-related. Well, there's a great spot on the web where truckers deal with other truckers. No middlemen involved. That's why we call it TruckerToTrucker.com. There's no charge at all for looking. And if you want to place an ad for what you're selling, it's just $19.95. And it runs till it sells. So whether you're buying or selling, it's time to log on and take a look. TruckerToTrucker.com. Check it out. That's TruckerToTrucker.com. Hey everybody, Alan Smith here with Truth About Trucking Live, and I want to tell you about TruckerLawyers.com. TruckerLawyers.com helps drivers with their legal needs, and they specialize in workers' compensation, trucking accidents, employment law, and other areas, but they never work for trucking companies. TruckerLawyers.com arms you with important information regarding workers' compensation and your legal rights, and they are also available to help you find assistance for additional legal issues. This includes determining how to get you the best benefits possible for your situation. The website truckerlawyers.com is a resource where you can learn more about your legal rights as a driver. Feel free to continue the social media conversation by liking them on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash truckerlawyers and follow them on Twitter as at truckerlawyers. Call them to talk through your questions at 1-800-736-5503. And when you call truckerlawyers, TruckerLawyers.com. Be sure to mention that you heard about them on Truth About Trucking Live. There's a lot of copycats out there, but you know, there's only one. Truth About Trucking Live. Now, back to the show. All right, well, I didn't ask you before the show, Donna, nothing, huh? What are you slacking off over there? Oh, I don't think you're you're muted. Oh, I do that all the time. I uh, I click the mute so there's no background noise, and then I forget to put it back on. Um, so what are you doing? Slacking off over there? I am slacking. I'm a, I'm just a slacker. We did a lot here. of research on this show. This was a this 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 could have been a three day show. I mean, this thing. Uh, I, I don't know how much I've read, but this thing's literally giving me a headache. I mean, this, but this guy is really—he's uh, really, you know—he makes a lot of great points. I mean, more points than the others who are for it, I think. But I, I don't know what my opinion about the whole thing is. But uh, you know, I would like to have uh, them on. I mean, we heard from OIDA, we heard from somebody from TIA, and they—they they said they'd like to come on the debate. We didn't give them much notice, so you know, in their defense, they 
probably couldn't make it tonight, but it'd be a great follow-up show to kind of get both sides, you know. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, kind of kind of like the the Fox News fair and balanced. That's it. That's what we're fair and balanced. <laughs> but uh I I tell you the truth, I I do uh I'm going to put put it out there. I I do kind of lean with uh, Mr. Lamb here and the way he looks at all this and uh, I've really learned quite a lot too because it is a lot to absorb and uh I wanted him to address the the truckers because every time you post anything, Alan, I noticed about freight brokers, there's all this negativity that goes oh, on. Yeah, I expect it. And uh, I, I, I just thought, okay, wait a minute now. Truckers' rates are going to go down. Uh, so, you know, why are you for this? So I, I think they really did need to, to listen to uh, all the supply and demand and the uh, mega brokers and what shocked me tonight more than anything was that the small brokers like Dan over at Transport Watch uh, works on 12 to 13 percent and that the mega brokers are working on 22 percent. Yeah, nearly double. So, uh, yeah, that's that. I could see where that, that can hurt the truckers. So uh, I hope there's a lot of uh, archive listens on this so people be, can become um, educated on what's really going on with the uh, with the freight broker bond, and I'll be I can't wait to find out what happens with the FMCSA. I, it's it's I've pretty much tried to read all the comments on there and what everybody was saying, and I, I think everybody should so they get an idea of you know the different views going on, and uh, especially read read uh, Oida's comment and the TIA comment, and that's what was so confusing to me, and I'm glad um, Mr. Lamb was so kind to explain that to me because it sounded like they were against any kind of uh, bond, but uh, I learned that's not the case. So, Well, the only thing that gets me is um, if they hadn't slipped it in in that final 11th hour like they do so often, I wouldn't be... Uh you know, I wouldn't have so much hesitation about it. But when they do things like that, to me, that's a red flag. But I thought it was interesting. Dan Matuli of TransportWatch.com, uh, you know, being a broker, uh, is okay with the with the increase. He just wanted it in increments. But I can see where it's not really going to do anything for fraud. But, I mean, if you're really serious about being, uh, you know, one of the good apples in brokers, uh, then, you know, you're going to put up, you know, 75000 is a lot of money. So if you're going to do that, then obviously, hopefully, um, uh, you know, you're going to be uh, a good and honest business. But OIDA made a point in their statement to the FMCSA that, according to their members, it only took between two to five motor carrier claims to exceed the $10,000 bond or trust. And OIDA, uh, I'm just reading here from their statement, OIDA routinely learns of insurance uh, where multiple claims totaling over fifty, seventy-five, a hundred thousand, and even two hundred thousand are filed against one broker, bond, or trust. So even if it's set at seventy-five, it's like Dan and James was saying, really not going to do anything for fraud. No, it, he was he he pointed out that uh, it's really for people who are in business. You know, they're they're just not meant to be in business, poor business, and the act wasn't criminal. It wasn't intent to hurt someone, uh, it was just part of bad business. And, you know, you come across that in life in all kinds of areas where you get involved in. And um, that's where when we had Dan on on the show, oh, about a year ago, year maybe a year and a half, 
when he said, you know, you can report people on this site, whether it be shippers, carriers, drivers, you know, to cr- to try to have kind of, we compared it back then, like an Angie's list for the trucking industry. And uh, Dan said he's getting back on that. Um, he's been working on his business now since this $75,000 bond to try to make sure, you know, he can maintain and expand his business. And he'll be uh, working more on Transport Watch. So uh, that's another way to fight fraud within the industry, and not just with brokers, with with everybody to keep everybody honest. And I think I think that's the name of the game. You know, everybody needs to help one another and take these stereotypes that you see so often. And I guess the point I was trying to make, and I don't know if I made it clear uh, enough, but you know, truckers are so sensitive to the stereotype that they receive and yet they seem to stereotype freight brokers in the same way so i think we need to all be sensitive to one another in the industry and especially since a lot of the brokers uh the 9800 i think he said 8000 of them were brokers that are small business and lost their jobs you know, they have families too. So I think it's just a matter of learning what's going on because unless you have knowledge and you know what's going on, you can't really be sensitive to the other side. So um, that's my two cents in this tonight. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. Well, listen, we had a thanks to all the listeners online. I guess nobody wanted to debate our guests, which I don't really blame them, but appreciate you listening in, those in the chat room and Thanks again to James Lamb of the AIPBA for joining us this evening. You can visit them at AIPBA.org. Thanks for tuning in and joining in the conversation. Really appreciate it, and we hope everyone has a great weekend coming up and even a better week. So, Oh, also, uh, jump on over to uh, exemptionapplication.com to learn more about what James and uh, the AIPBA is doing about this uh, bond issue. So until next time, We'll uh, leave you with a song we haven't played in a while from the Big Rigs Don't Roll, the original title, uh, When the Big Rigs Don't Roll. We'll throw that out at you this evening. So until next time, on behalf of Donna Smith, TruthAboutTrucking.com, AskTheTrucker.com, Blog Talk Radio, and Truth About Trucking Live, I'm Alan Smith. Drive safe, and thanks for listening. Man, it sucks when the big old companies make a billion bucks On the backs of the working man driving trucks and cars It takes 1,200 bucks to fill this rig While I'm stuffing the pockets of some big wig He don't care if I've maxed out my credit cards The only trick I get for my truck is the jack and the price when I fill it up. It's like pumping my money down an endless hole. What they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll? Tell me what they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll. don't need a college degree to figure out that they're ripping off me. They get a big tax break and all I get's the shaft. 
insurance goes up if my credit is down if i sink any lower i'm gonna drown and i ain't getting no help from a bureaucrat now the only trick i get for my truck is a jack in the price when i fill it up it's like pumping my money down an endless hole but what they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll Tell me what they're going to do when the big rigs don't roll. If mama hadn't taught me the golden rule, I'd tell those big wigs what to do. With the nozzle on the pump where I get my gas. But I'm a good boy and I won't do that. My truck is a jack in the price when I fill it up. It's like pumping my money down an endless hole. But what they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll? Tell me what they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll. What they gonna do when the big rigs don't roll? 